Well, go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew 27. We're going to be starting in verse 55 this morning where we left off from last week. Last Sunday, we took what I believe is a sobering look at the death of Jesus Christ. And in doing that, we also looked at all that it accomplished for us in His atoning sacrifice, His substitutionary work on our behalf, by which we are redeemed from sin through faith and reconciled in our relationship with God as He forgives us of our sin, gives us a new life. But that victory that we're going to celebrate next Sunday on Easter necessitates the sacrifice that we looked at last week. Christianity is built on the reality that because of sin, you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have the victory of resurrection without the pain and sacrifice of the death of Jesus Christ. And of course, this is Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday directly before Easter. And of course, chronologically, that's because this is the day that we reflect on his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And we're not going to be covering that narrative. We've already done that. Rather, we're going to deal with the time between his death on Friday evening and the resurrection on Sunday morning. And the gospel according to Matthew fascinates me in that it goes to details and kind of giving narratives about the people and how the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, kind of was reflected in their actions, in their faith, in their lives. And so today we're going to take a look at three different groups of people. We're going to take a look at the women that were gathered before the cross that witnessed the death of Jesus Christ, and then uh, Joseph of Arimathea, as well as Nicodemus, as they prepared the body of Jesus for burial. But we'll also take a look at the Roman uh, government and the Jewish leaders as they, again, even after the death of Jesus, conspire uh, to kind of put a halt to any thought that he would rise from the dead, as futile as such an idea even is. And what you're going to first to is that there is a faithfulness in their lives that builds a passion for Jesus Christ that gives us the reality that following Jesus demands a faithfulness that is uncommon in this world. And as you're going to see in this passage, the people that do not believe in Jesus in this sinful world are going to seek to convince, to cajole, to even force you to forsake him. And because of that, while faithfulness is difficult, it's necessary in being a follower of Jesus Christ. So to forsake Christ is, of course, to be found unfaithful. But through the power of God's spirit in your life, faithfulness is not just a goal. Faithfulness will be the reality of your very life. I want to read the first two narratives right up front, starting in verse 55. After speaking of the faith of the centurion, Matthew records and says, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Number one this morning, I want you to understand that faithfulness to following Jesus matters to God. Faithfulness to following Jesus matters to God. To God. 
In your life of following Jesus Christ, faithfulness over the long haul must be the goal of your life. Many people, even when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ, you have goals that are more flashy than they are faithful goals that you want to be noticed, a type of life in which you are applauded by men and women around you. But that is never the goal of life that you see in Scripture. You see a goal and you see God noticing when people are simply faithful. One of the interesting things to take note of in the New Testament, of course, is the role of women. That era was not one like our own. In that era, women did not take a prominent role in culture. And to point to their involvement in any narrative, to point to them as being trustworthy witnesses or a source of trust is one of the unusual things about the New Testament in comparison to other records of history from antiquity that we have. Yet the gospel writers are always quick to point out the women involved in the earthly ministry of Jesus. And then, of course, throughout the rest of the New Testament, there's an obvious focus on the unique and wonderful role of women in the life of discipleship and the life of the family and the life of even the church of Jesus Christ. And Matthew points to a group of women that had been ministering to Jesus during the final period of his ministry. From Galilee forward, it records, but specifically that they were standing at a distance from the cross, witnessing the events of the cross. And even though they were doing this from a distance, the key is an understanding that they had not abandoned Jesus as the other disciples had. This is a statement of their faithfulness. MacArthur notes in his commentary that spiritual women have a capacity for incredible loyalty, even in the face of ridicule and danger. These women were not ashamed of being identified with Jesus in the way that even His closest disciples were ashamed. They were afraid. They were afraid that they themselves were going to be persecuted. They were afraid that they themselves would be arrested like Jesus. But here in the role of these women that, quite frankly, we don't know a great about most of them outside of this passage, save Mary Magdalene, whom we don't really know that much about her either outside of the narratives and her involvement with Jesus and his earthly life. Lots of people have made stuff up about her. But all that we know about Mary Magdalene is what is actually recorded in the pages of Scripture. Yet we know one thing about her and we know one thing about all of the women that were gathered there that day. They were committed to a life of faith faithfulness. It is your faithfulness to the gospel that will be the defining reality of your life. And that's a faithfulness that must stretch over the long haul of your life. There is a tendency in Christianity to simply celebrate the zeal of a new convert to faith in Jesus Christ. That moment where you realize that your sins are forgiven and you have this excitement that is unparalleled, an excitement that might fade over time. And that is why Scripture kind of denounces a zeal not tested by actual knowledge where the gospel of Jesus Christ is concerned. I know that over my life I have seen many claim faith in Jesus Christ only in the months, if not years, to follow They abandoned their faith. They went apostate. They even went as far as to deny their faith in Jesus Christ. I know that over my two decades in ministry in the local church, I've seen many that would even rise to the ranks of leadership, some even to the role of pastors over local churches who because of sin in their lives or because of personal failure in other areas, they abandoned not just the ministry, but they have even gone so far as to abandon faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ as a whole. That's why when people come to faith in Christ, 
they profess faith in Christ here at Village Church, my response is always, give it a minute. Let them stretch their legs a little bit. Let them experience what following Jesus is really like. I'm always excited over new converts, but I'm also very trepid in that I celebrate new faith in that the truth of your faith is actually only going to be seen 10, 20, 30, 40, maybe even 50 years from now. Jerry Falwell used to tell us that the truth of someone's faith is typically seen in the fourth quarter of their lives. Most important quarter of your life is that last one, that fourth quarter. Give a sports analogy. And the fact is that following Jesus Christ over the long haul is the most difficult thing that you will ever do in your life because faithfulness that is enduring requires the power of the Holy Spirit. It is impossible to endure over the course of a lifetime without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can conjure up excitement on your own. You can conjure up emotion over music on your own. You can conjure up a zeal where you are on fire even because of the facts of the gospel that are new to you. As himself in the parable of the sower, he said there are going to be people who seemingly have faith and the, the fruitfulness of their faith shoots up like a, like a vine very quickly, but then whether it's the heat of the sun or the weeds that choke out faith, they abandon faith, whether it be for the pleasures of this world or whether it be because of persecution for faith in the Son of God and their lives. And these women serve as an amazing example, knowing nothing flashy about them, knowing nothing of anything else that they did other than they were when it was obviously the hardest for the disciples they were not ashamed of being identified with Jesus. They were not ashamed, even at a distance. People would have known Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. People would have known the mother of the sons of Zebedee. People would have known that the mother of James and John, followers of Jesus. And as they stood on the cross that, at the cross that day, people knew who they were, yet in faithfulness they stood there. Boys, let this be an example to you. You don't just want a flashy woman, you want a faithful woman. Now, flashy and faithful ain't bad. <laughs> but faithfulness is always more important than flashiness because flashiness fades. I got bad news. None of us are getting prettier with age. None of us are getting thinner with age. Even though a woman confronted me with that reality, how much weight she'd lost after the service, adventure and missing the point. I was at a church planning event a couple of years ago, and I was with all these college kids, and you know, I'm a, I'm a little vain, a little prideful, except for my diet, and I came home, and I asked my wife, I said, honey, I said, I think I look like a, I could pass off for a college student, and with no love, <laughs> she looked at me with a scowl on her face. And I knew honesty was about to hit me right in the face like a two by four. Her exact words, never, I'll never forget them. <laughs> oh no, you've aged. <laughs> My heart has never broken quite in the way that it broke that day. But the truth of your life is seen over the long haul of your life. That's why I'm always weary of 20-year-old leaders, even though I was one at one point. I always have to say, give it a minute. 
Now, I have red hair. It never goes gray, apparently. So I can't say, wait till I have some gray hair. Some of you are just going to be waiting in perpetuity for me to go gray. I'm probably going to go bald before I go gray. But the fact is, let people get some age on their faith. The people that have had largest impact of my endurance in the faith are people that you will never know their name and you will never hear about them. I remember as a young boy, there was none of this blacking out dates on Planning Center that many of you volunteers wonderfully do all the time here. I'm so thankful. When you took a Sunday school class in the 80s, that meant you were going to show up every single Sunday. Sunday morning and invest in the lives of young people. And I remember watching the example of older men and women in my life, those who will never have the acclaim of the world, those who will never even have the acclaim of other Christians. They faithfully invested in me over the course of my entire childhood, and I remember their faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and my ministry as a pastor has been built on their shoulders. Most of them have gone on to heaven since then, but I remember their faithfulness. You know nothing more about these women than this small snippet of the narrative of Scripture tells you, but you will note one thing, that God recognized their faithfulness to the gospel to the extent that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he had Matthew record, even if just in a small portion of Scripture, Matthew records, while everyone else was abandoning Jesus, these women were found faithful faithful. Never do anything in your Christian life for the fleeting applause of human beings. Everything that you do must be for faithfulness. Everything you do must be because God himself notices it even if no one else does. Too many think that your faithfulness in simply following Jesus over the long haul and being committed to his mission is unimportant. This text shows the, vit- excuse me, the vitality of your life. Faithfulness is a fruit of God's grace in your life. The faithfulness of these women is a sign of the work of God's grace in their lives. In Luke 16, 10, Jesus even told his followers as much by telling them if they were faithful in very little, it's then that they could be trusted to be faithful in very much. Note that many people have this backwards. You think that the only thing that God could possibly do in your life is something that's big, something that's grandiose, something that's noticed by a leader, something that's noticed by someone else. You discount the thousands of things that God has called you to be faithful in in your everyday life. So you shirk your responsibility, so you walk away from the small things that God calls you to in faithfulness every single day, but That is why the larger responsibilities never come. Because you haven't learned what one of my disciples told me. He said, Steve, labor in absolute obscurity. Because all that matters is what God says about you, is what God thinks about you. And God wants us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be faithful. 
What many people don't understand about faithfulness and what you misunderstand is that you want God to do something humanly impressive. You have a view, I got to go big or I got to go home. You want to be bold in your life so that you will be noticed by someone because you believe that will elevate you somehow in this world. But you are not satisfied with laboring in obscurity over the thousands of small things that God's given you. You barely spend any time in the Word. You're not in prayer. Mothers, you think that somehow raising children is a small calling. Fathers, you think that earning and supplying for your family's needs is a small calling. Friend, if you cannot be faithful in the things that no one is ever going to applaud you for, then you can't be trusted with much more than that. Friends, you must be found faithful in all of the things that God has called you towards in your life because God says that they are impressive. Because God says that they matter. Because He has given you His... We've even come to a place in popular Christianity where just a few weeks ago I read an article in Christianity Today, which is more like becoming anti-Christianity today with every issue. And in that article, it demeaned the value of a quiet time in your life. Something that when I was a child, I was taught a very simple principle. Every single day of your life, find a time in which you can get away by yourself to read the Scriptures, to spend time in communion, spend time in prayer with God. And it says you shouldn't build your life on something that's so selfish? How else am I supposed to build my life? God has given me His Word. People ask me all the time, Steve, how do you know so much about the Bible? Because I've literally been reading it for four decades. You think I learned this overnight? We think that God is going to give a spiritual growth like a microwave dinner. But who likes microwave dinners? I hope no one. Fact of the matter is, the option, do I want a filet mignon from Ruth's Chris? Or do I want a hungry man dinner? I hope you've got the common sense to go to Ruth's Chris. It's pretty good. But friends, Eugene Peterson called that microwave Christianity, this desire and this thought that we're going to grow to be the people that God has called us to be in an overnight flash. That wouldn't be healthy growth. There's a reason God has given me my entire life to read His Bible. There's a reason God has given me my entire life to grow in following Jesus Christ. That is why, friends, I cannot express enough. Some of you have walked away from Scripture. You've walked away from prayer. You're not even serving in the local church anymore. And it is because you failed one moment weeks, months, even years ago. Friend, don't give up over a moment when you got a lifetime to grow. Don't give up over a bad week when you've got years to follow Jesus Christ. Don't give up. You failed in your Bible reading plan last year. Don't even give up because most of you have already failed this year. Just pick it back up and get in the Word. God has grace for you. So what if you won't finish it by December 31st? You've got a whole lifetime. I've read the Scripture dozens of times, and it's not because I chose to do that last week. It's because I chose to do that even as a young man. And I've just had an entire lifetime to do it over and over. I've never wasted a minute of my life that was spent in prayer. 
The goal is not the applause of others, but the approval of God. Philippians 1.6 gives us the hope and imperative that it is God who has begun the work of faithfulness in my life. Therefore, I must depend on him to keep me faithful. And then in the end, it says he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, that day of completion, if you're on this earth, For 50, 60, 70, 80 years, that day of completion isn't in your 20s. That day of completion is when you take your last breath. That is how long you have. And so that's how long you need to plan on building a life of faithfulness and following Jesus Christ. Live your life to be noticed by God because faithfulness is always what matters to Him. But understand that that faithfulness is built on number two, that faithfulness eventually demands courage. Faithfulness eventually demands courage. And I specifically use the word eventually on purpose. And you'll you'll see why in just a minute. In the second section that I read you, it talks about a different narrative. It talks about Joseph of Arimathea. A man, we know less about Joseph of Arimathea than we do about Mary Magdalene. We don't know much about this guy at all other than what the text tells us. But John recorded a little more about this period than Matthew did. And so look in John 19, starting in verse 38, and you see the narrative of Joseph of Arimathea. It says that after these things, after the death of Christ, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple, and this is a mind-boggling phrase that you're about to read, but secretly for fear of the Jews. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't fit the understanding of faith in Jesus Christ that I have. Keep reading. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Verse 39, Nicodemus, remember this guy, John 3, you must be born again. Pharisee coming to Jesus under the cover of night. Both of these men were members of the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, of the Jews. And keep reading. It says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's a lot. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in place, excuse me, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. We know that was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus There, John 19 describes Joseph of Arimathea in a way that you will not read anywhere else in Scripture. This is the only part of Scripture where you read anything. It calls him a secret believer. But more than that, it says he was a secret believer because of his fear. He was afraid of what would happen to him if anyone knew that he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. Mark 15, 43 is where we read that he was part of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin as well. This is a vital narrative, I believe, for people in our age that are either just entering into discipleship, or maybe you have been in discipleship, but you have kept your faith life and what you would call your regular life in two separate compartments whether it be because of fear, whether it be because of trepidation, where you just have a little anxiety for whatever reason. When you hear that someone is a secret Christian, I hope that feels very strange to you. That should. It feels very odd. Because faith is definitely a personal thing, but how can it also be a private thing? 
I mean, take into consideration, following Jesus literally is accompanied by a command to go and make other disciples. We are called by God in the gospel to multiply our faith in the lives of other people. But think about the life many have lived throughout history and many are living right now. Maybe you work for maybe, let's just say, a Fortune 500 company. And so with all the LGBTQIAEIOUs, that mafia that's hunting you down, the DEI department, looking for equity wherever they can find it, even if they got to make up genders for it, maybe you're afraid. Maybe they've tried to put you in an ally group. Maybe they've tried to give you a rainbow pin and you don't know what to do with it. I mean, even this past week. We've realized the trannies are losing their minds. They've already lost their minds. By the way, there's no such thing as transgender. All right, welcome to Village Church. We still only have two. All right, we got boys, we got girls, we got no thirds. All right, never will. But the fact of the matter is, is maybe you have in your faith life, you are privately sharing the gospel with close friends, with close family, But at work, you have to be a secret follower of Jesus in your mind or else you will risk being fired. Many of you, because of that, can probably empathize with Joseph here. And that's why I believe this is a vitally important example for the modern era. John 19 states that he and Nicodemus, members of the same council, had a strategy in which they were going to be secret followers of Jesus so that they would not lose their roles in leadership. But note that after the death of Jesus came the point where they knew they couldn't stay secret any longer. There was no way for a member of the Sanhedrin to go to Pilate requesting the body of Christ, who obviously had money because those types of graves were expensive, to say, I want to bury Jesus Christ in my family plot. There was no way for Nicodemus to, he must have used a dolly or something, to cart in 75 pounds of preparation material and no one noticed that that's what Nicodemus is doing. There's no way that Joseph and Nicodemus could have pulled this off and the next day gone back and been like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That was the day that they were outed for their faith. Therefore, I want you to understand that if you are younger in the faith and right now your strategy is I'm going to be strategic, I'm going to be quiet, I'm going to keep my faith in Jesus Christ and all that it entails, all that I can't compromise on, I'm going to keep it a secret. That might work for a little while, but eventually... You can't keep it a secret anymore. The reason is that as you grow in your faith, faith is just going to ooze out of your pores. As you get closer to Jesus Christ, it becomes the very identifying nature of every aspect of your life. The deeper you get into following Jesus, I'll be honest, the more courage it is going to take and the riskier your faith is going to be in an unbelieving world. The death of Jesus changed something for Joseph and Nicodemus. That was the moment where God looked in their lives and said, you can't keep it a secret anymore. Will you honor my son? That was the moment for them. What's the moment going to be for you? 
Because without courage, I'll be frank with you, without courage in faith in this world, you are never going to make it. You're never going to make it in following Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6 says as much. Look at what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Because of that, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You realize there's three different verbs for stand in this passage. He says, stand, then withstand. Then when you've done all to do that, stand. There's no backing up. There's no compromise. There's only standing firm in your faith. And I will tell you what is happening to so many who will not endure in the faith. So many being secret about their faith, they've drawn a line in the sand. And they've said, here's the line. If you cross this line, I'm going to be firm in my faith in Jesus Christ. But you're not preparing. You're not putting on the full armor of God. What you've done is you've convinced yourself that once I need courage, that is when I'll put on the full armor of God. And so when they cross that line, you say, I didn't think you crossed that line. So you back up. (laughs) Take about five steps back. Another line. This is it. This is the one you, oh, okay. All right. And so they back you into a corner. And we've devolved in a place in our society without Christian influence, without people being courageous in the faith, that we now have leaders that even after a demonically influenced tranny walks into a Christian school and kills six Christians, three nine-year-olds, three grandparents, kills six Christians, the highest level of our government in the United States says, I'm praying for the transgendered community. I'm not saying that to feel sorry for ourselves. Jesus was honest with us. He said, you're going to be persecuted. He said, they, they crucified me. What do you think they're going to do to you? So they're going to persecute you. But let me tell you, the only victims that day were Christians. And we live in a world that is at minimum influenced by the demonic. At minimum That's what we're dealing with right here and right now. There's no transgender person in this world that isn't influenced by demons. Is it a mental illness? You bet it's a mental illness. Demonic influence is always mental illness. And that's what we're dealing with here. But Paul doesn't say, don't prepare so that you'll be able to prepare when you need to stand. No, you prepare to need to stand for the day when you need to stand. Joseph and Nicodemus did not have the courage to do what they did that day because they just woke up and said, we will prepare to need courage for when we need it. No, they woke up every day saying, I'm going to prepare today because I don't know when I'm going to need it. You need to realize that you don't get authority over the day that they cross whatever mystical line in the sand that you have drawn. You don't get to say when they cross it. Therefore, you need to prepare for them to cross it every single day of your life. You need to be in this book 
every single day. You need to be in prayer every single day. You need to be surrounding yourself with a community of believers who are faithful every single day. You need to be surrounding yourself with people who are more mature in the faith, people who have taken some hits in this world that you haven't taken yet so that you can glean from their knowledge and experience of following Jesus in this world every single day of your life. You have to continue to prepare so that you can continue to stand because there are forces in this world, the scripture tells us, trying to work against you to knock you down every single day. Friend, if you want to stand firm, then you have to prepare to need courage on the day that it counts. Stop preparing to hide your faith and start preparing to be courageous with your faith in an unbelieving culture. Friend, I've said it many times, I have no problem taking hits for you. I'll take all the hits in the world, but there's going to come a day where I can't take them. There's going to come a day where they're not going to come at me and they're going to come at you. That is the day you're going to need the full armor of God. You're not just going to need the shield. You're not just going to need the helmet. You're not just going to need the sword. You're going to need the whole kit and caboodle. And here's where some of you get discouraged. You say, well, they've crossed 17 of my lines. You say, I don't even know what a sword is. I don't know that the sword of the spirit is the scripture. I've failed every single day. Here's the deal. There's nothing you can do about yesterday. Yesterday's gone. Last week, it's over. Last month, never coming back. You cannot turn the time back, but you can confess your sin right now and begin to build a life of preparation. So many of you define your life by the failures of the past when Jesus wants you to define it by the victory of the present that God has for you. If you are faith, excuse me, if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Then you can begin to prepare to stand. That's the answer to personal failure. You must take it. But then number three this morning, Faithfulness is anchored in truth even when surrounded by lies. I love the way that chapter 27 ends because we have these two amazing statements of faithfulness and then he goes back to the Jewish leaders and the Roman government. Unfaithfulness on display. Verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, so we're at Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. And I want to pause there because I truly believe that the next thing that they say was a lie to cover themselves. I don't believe that the Jewish leaders were afraid that the disciples were going to come and steal the body. Here's why. What in the world had the disciples done to make the Jewish leaders think that they were going to exert even an ounce of courage? As soon as they came to arrest Jesus, the 10 that were left after the 10 of the ones that were left after Judas left fled. One of them picked up a sword and he was so bad with a sword, he cut someone's ear off with it. Here's the deal. If you hit an ear, you've never held a sword before. All right? 
And so Peter cuts an ear off. Jesus heals it. Then Peter goes and denies Jesus. These guys had done nothing to make anyone think they were going to be brave enough to come and steal the body of Jesus. They were in hiding at this point. And so I truly, as I read Matthew's narrative, what I feel and what I sense from the context is that these Jewish leaders were afraid Jesus was actually going to rise from the dead. And these Jewish leaders were so deceived in their sin that they were like, you know what we need to do in case he rises from the dead? We need to put a couple of guards out front and a big rock. If he rises from the dead, what are they going to do? Kill him again? If he rises from the dead, do you think someone with resurrection power is going to be like, oh no, they figured it out, a big rock. (laughs) This is my kryptonite. What will I ever do? These Jewish leaders are so deceived by sin that even in the face of the fact that they're given it a percentage chance that Jesus was right, that Jesus might rise from the dead, they're not falling on their knees in repentance. They're still trying to put human obstacles in Jesus's way. And they continue their deception. And it says, lest that his disciples go steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Sinful humanity for thousands of years has sought to redefine reality in our image. I mean, like I said, verses 62 through 66 read as a type of comedy. It's a comedy of errors, but such is the folly of an unbelieving mind. Denying faith in Jesus is the same as denying reason itself, and that is why they seem so unreasonable. There is ultimately no morality or logic that is not anchored to the Christian worldview. Therefore, without the hand of God, reality always devolves into a chaos of redefining reality in the image of sinful man. Think about it. This is not far off from the sinful ideologies of our day. This is the postmodern construct. It is the belief that there's no reality outside of self. Therefore, you are anointed the God who creates reality around yourself. And it's whatever reality you want it to be. This is what is meant by the phrase, this is my truth. Or that is your truth. Friend, there is no my truth. There is just the truth. Reality itself is biblical. And it is a core fundamental of faith in Jesus Christ. You do not have an autonomy from God to where you can redefine objectivity itself. Only God has the power to do that. Therefore, when you see people, and this is all rooted in a man named Jacques Derrida who said there's no meaning of the text speaking in literature. And what he meant by that is the author of a text cannot put an objective meaning. It's only what you say the meaning is that matters. And that has what led us to believe that if you don't think that you are a boy, well, you can believe that you are a girl. If you don't think that you are a girl, you can believe that you are a boy. It is rooted in absolute chaos 
cross, and it will be the unraveling of Western culture itself if there is no repentance and return to the Christian worldview, because that is the worldview that the entire system of the West was built on. You do not live in a world where whatever you claim is reasonable is that which defines reason. You cannot define truth. You cannot identify a truth that denies reality itself. And that is what we've seen this past week with the Nashville tragedy and all that has come in the aftermath of it. Someone who decided reality does not exist in my life, but that which I say reality is sought to make victims of those that claim to have an objective view of reality. And so this is an attack on Christianity as a whole. That woman was not a victim. She was a demonic monster. These people were not satisfied with their denial of Jesus. Even in their denial, they gave possibility to the resurrection. Even in light of resurrection power, they denied Christ because they would not submit to the call of God in their lives. How heinous is your sinfulness when you will admit to the power of God yet still fight against Him? I'll be frank with all of you. Those who deny Christ will always ultimately seek to bring hell to this earth because they know deep down inside that that is their ultimate destination. But friend, here's the great news of the gospel. Jesus is the truth. We have a reality-defining statement from Jesus Christ in John 14, 6, and this is what the faithfulness of the women and the faithfulness of Joseph was built on. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Know what he said? He said he is truth. Jesus is the very ground upon which we stand. He is the very light by which we see the landscape of creation. He is the way that all must move forward, and He is the life by which we will live. Jesus is the defining reality around you, because apart from Him, ultimately, you can know nothing. That is why the gospel is vital to every aspect of your life, from leadership to education to your decisions, everything. We must stop looking to those who would deny the gospel as being the greatest experts in our society. We must stop depending on those that would deny the gospel for our education. We must realize that the gospel is the very foundation upon which every excuse me, every material and immaterial thing in this world is built upon. And when you remove the gospel of Jesus as the foundation, even if you become an expert at all of those other things that build the walls and the roof of the house, it will all come tumbling down because it is built on a foundation of sand. And that is why the discourse with Pilate in John 18 is so clarifying In verse 37, Pilate questioning him says, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Note what he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And what Pilate says is so telling. What is truth? 
Jesus just told him. Jesus is right in front of him and says, I'm truth. And whoever listens to my voice is of the truth. And Pilate looks and he says, I can't hear the melody. Pilate says, I'm deaf. Jesus, God, the son gives him the gospel. And Pilate says, what are you saying? Friends, without Jesus Christ, you cannot know truth. That's his point. Jesus tells him and he's bearing witness and Pilate says, I can't hear you. Friend, when you cannot hear the voice of Jesus, you will never hear the sound of truth. The world around you, understand this. The world around you will lie about everything. Therefore, if you want to live a life of faithfulness to Jesus, you must anchor yourself to truth and refuse to move even an inch. You must stay right there because those who are faithful to Jesus will always be in the truth. They will always know the way forward. They will always see the truth in a field of lies. Therefore, friend, live for Jesus and never, ever, ever consider an alternative. A few application points this morning. First, be faithful in everything God commands. Everything. No one's going to notice most of it. That does not do anything to lessen the call of God in those areas. Secondly, faithfulness over the long haul matters most. You need to start preparing for the faith that you will need to follow Jesus 30 years from now. Some of you are only building a resume of faith to last until supper time. You need to start building a life in which you say, I'm setting the next 30 years of my life to be faithful to the call of Jesus Christ in my life. Number four, prepare to be courageous with your faith because they're coming. Paul told us, he said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities, the powers of darkness in this present age. They're coming. Are you preparing? And then finally, anchor your life to Jesus and refuse to move elsewhere. The waves are going to come. Storms are going to be there. The pain, the suffering, it's around the corner. And the enemies of Christ and our culture are everywhere in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime. Prepare to follow Jesus for the rest of your life.